You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Working women have long been accustomed to the idea of a double shift, and working remotely has driven that home. As I was preparing for this interview today, my son needed help with his homework. Another child had a, quote, fiscal emergency at college. There was the dog, the meals to plan, things to do. And of course, like many of you, my day job. And I'm far from alone. Today, we're going to talk about the state of women in corporate America and speak with two co-founders of what is the largest study of women in corporate America. Joining me, are Lorena Yee, a senior partner and McKinsey's chief diversity and inclusion officer. Lorena, welcome. Thank you. And Alexis Krivkovich, senior partner who leads McKinsey's San Francisco office and the company's fintech practice in North America. Alexis, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Lorena, let's start with you. Give us a quick roundup of this year's results. It's now in its sixth year. What changed? What changed is how women are experiencing work. And what we find is that we are at a crossroads. And a crossroads, I have to say that last year, this time, I didn't expect us to be on. What we found is that one in four women are considering stepping out or stepping back from the workplace. And that is a shocking number, one in four. It's millions of women considering this. Now, certainly all of these women haven't acted on that. But the fact that they're considering it is something we've never seen in the previous six years of the research. And in fact, in all other years, when we did this research, one of the myths that we, you know, felt that we had busted is that women are leaving at greater rates than men. In fact, what we saw at every company and across all industries and across corporate America was that attrition between men and women were equivalent. But this year, with how COVID has reshaped the workplace, that is actually different. And I think it's really important to note that there are three sub-stories in here. It's a certainly a working mom story, as you said in your introduction, but that's not exclusively the challenge. We also saw a really acute challenge for senior women, whether they had children or not, and Black women. And so the biggest message here is that we are at this moment, we are a precipice where we may actually lose the gains the hard-earned gains that we've worked on in corporate America, or we may continue to go down a path where we see more quality in the workplace. I'm curious what's prompting senior women to leave during a time like this. Alexis, what have you found? What we hear and see from senior women is this sense of exhaustion and this feeling of burnout. Like They always have to be on, like the responsibilities have magnified in ways that are really profound and the lack of boundaries and expectations of when you're in the office, when the office has come to you, has become particularly challenging for them. And this is especially critical because it's not just the senior women themselves that we're worried about. It's the impact they have broadly on diversity and inclusion in their workplace environment. Let's define that for people in terms of what it means to be senior in the context of this study? Sure. So we think about the talent pools in uh, three broad categories. We think about early tenure women um, at the front lines and in individual contributor roles. We think about 
early management and early leadership. These are often the first management positions or even the second management positions like a senior manager or director level. And then we think about senior leadership and senior leadership is everything from VP level up through the C-suite and top executive ranks in companies. And the importance of these communities, particularly senior women, is that the proportion of women we have in the pipeline at senior levels is still quite low relative to our aspiration of equity. So we start with 48% women, but by the time we get to the C-suite, we're down to one in five. And we had been making progress in that area, right, Lorena? We had, over the last couple of years, we'd seen some real payoff of the efforts that companies were making. And we were seeing an increase from, say, 16, 17%, those senior women, the people who report straight up to the CEO and are the SVPs and EVPs of organizations. We saw 16, 17% go up to 20, 22% for various industries. And even though that doesn't sound like a huge difference, it is. When you have two, three, four members of your top team that are women, it signals something completely different. And certainly for the women who are working their way up through the ranks, if she could see it, she can be it, is a bit of the motto that I've heard so many people say. And what that is saying is I'm looking for a role model. But it also changes the quality of business management. Diversity actually improves business performance. So even though we think of this as individual stories of women and the type of opportunities we want to create, it shouldn't be lost on companies that this is actually good business as well. And if you're looking for a number around that, we saw globally, and this just isn't alone the United States, we saw across companies, 34% higher return on equity for management teams that had diverse members on that team. So that would be gender diversity, racial diversity, and essentially underrepresented voices are part of the team making decisions. Just on a personal level, does this resonate with both of you, Alexis, what you're hearing from senior women? Does it sound familiar to you during this pandemic? Absolutely. The senior woman phenomenon is one of many points of intersection. Mm-hmm. Um Senior women are very likely to feel and experience being onlys, meaning they're representing and the only one of their kind in interactions. And that's important because it comes with a lot of extra responsibility that is placed on that. And I think many of us feel in this moment, not just a sense of we're trying to keep the ship moving in our own household in whatever configuration that is. Um, in many cases, senior women are more likely to be mothers. That's certainly the case in my house with three kids running around. But now increasingly, we're also caretakers for our office, our community, a virtual culture. We're trying to represent all of the women out there that we want to see advance to join us in the senior ranks. But we're also playing roles in many cases of, I have new hobbies like um, virtual school principal. And <laughs> and I, uh, I spend a lot of time wiping down groceries with <laughs> with disinfectant, right? Like all these things that were never part of our our day job or our night job have been added to the plate. And I think for many senior women, it's just an extremely intense moment to put all those pieces together. And Diane, I think it's worth noting that all those extra jobs that Alexis has taken on, you know, chief, chief disinfectant officer, chief virtual school officer, all of these extra roles, uh, personal chef to her three children, all these roles are the tune of three hours a day of extra work 
So you mentioned mm-hmm. the double shift. The double shift was not three hours a day on top of a full-time work schedule before. So, you know, I think that if you happen to be both a working mom and a senior woman, you probably feel, and I think Alexis and I both, as mothers of three kids and senior women ourselves, feel enormous amounts of pressure. And when you look at the data, I think the reaction you have from a lot of working moms and a lot of senior moms is like, well, of course, that that may explain why I'm exhausted. That may explain why it's not just me, but around me, we see much higher rates of burnout. What you worry about is if you were just sprinting for a couple of weeks at the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of people said, okay, my head will go down and I'll do the right thing. But when you're living that way for a year or more, that is just not a sustainable way to build culture and work. So it's not an empty threat, the idea that women will leave. Well, I don't think it's an empty threat. I also don't think the load is equally shared. So one of my favorite statistics, um, and I'm sure there are many, but one favorite is that 77% of men think that they carry the load equally at home. And I do think a lot of men are carrying quite a bigger load. However, only 40% of moms agree that that's taking place. So you still don't have a shared space outside of work for all those extra things that have to be done. And so when women work three hours a day on top of whatever their day is for weeks at a time, and they often take on more of the responsibilities in the office, in addition to the business performance results that are expected to be delivered, and if someone feels, my goodness, this is pretty intense, there's a reason for that. What advice do you have right now? For leaders who do want more gender equity, who are dealing with a whole host of issues. The first piece we have to think about is how are we going to make this new normal sustainable, Mm -hmm. right? As Lorena said, I think many of us thought we hoped this was maybe a sprint and it's really become a marathon. And so for companies, that really requires thinking much more broadly about their responsibility for the whole human and the whole health of their employees, not just to ensure productivity, but to ensure sort of sanity for people, Mm -hmm. right, in this extraordinary moment. And so what that means is, are we rethinking as leaders of companies, are we rethinking the expectations about what is truly sustainable as this becomes more of a medium to long-term phenomenon of having people working virtually, facing Um, some of the disconnects and support that would enable them to focus as they usually would on their work environment. The second piece of that is just, do we have a set of new norms around what, what allows us to set boundaries and what's appropriate to enable the flexibility that's possible here to actually be achieved? A lot of what we hear is that folks are saying, great, I don't have to commute anymore terrible that in any given moment of any hour of the day across any time zone, you feel you can reach me and I don't feel like I have the control to say yes or no. And so setting some reasonable boundaries for people about simple things. When do meetings occur? Responsiveness to emails, time on and time off. But then we have to extend that and those boundaries into the structural places. Like people are feeling a sense of pressure and stress and concern about the criteria that are being used to evaluate them, the expectations or the lack of clarity about those expectations. 
And companies are going to have to take that tricky topic head on and think about in that context of the playbook for, you know, sustaining culture, for creating sponsorship and, and feedback, for ensuring that bias does not get into the system. That playbook is for many companies, mostly a physical location playbook, meaning it was born and developed for an environment where you had the opportunity to manage these things in the office setting. And increasingly, we have to rewrite that playbook for this virtual moment. And that's going to take a different set of tools and a different way to approach a number of these topics. Lorena, what are you telling CEOs? It is how do you run the marathon, not the sprint. There are two things that I would add to call attention to. One is invest in her. So investments matter. A third of companies told us this year that they are thinking about scaling back or already have scaled back their diversity and inclusion programs. At this point in time, I can't understand why you would do that. The second thing is that only 50% of companies said that they were increasing their programs and investments and around things like mental health and support for working parents. And given what we've just talked about, again, it seems to me strange that only half of the companies are investing in these two areas. So that's one piece of invest. But there's another piece, which is invest in the talent you have. So this is a moment where you do not want to lose the women that you have. So invest in their talent. Women are equally, if not more, ambitious to become leaders. That's a positive level ambition. And we know that when a workplace is fair, and we know when women have sponsors that bring up opportunities for them to professionally advance and to flourish, they do better and they're more likely to want to stay. So my question back for anyone who's leading a team is how are you supporting with opportunities the women on your team today? And it takes us back to something we've talked a lot about over the years, but becomes ever more important, which is, are you over-mentoring and under-sponsoring or are you truly sponsoring women to succeed? Now, what does that mean, over-mentoring and under-sponsoring? It's an intriguing concept. Well, so mentoring is fantastic. It is friendship, affinity, empathy. And I think all of us as human beings need that. But the difference is sponsorship takes it one level up. Sponsorship is providing professional opportunities. And the types of tactical behaviors, if you have a sponsor, or you should have really a pit crew of sponsors to advance professionally in the work world, would be, do you have a manager or someone senior who's helping you see around the corner above and beyond what you're doing? Is someone betting on your potential, bringing you to a meeting, letting you present, giving you some of those high-profile project opportunities where you're going to increase your visibility, helping you expand your network, helping you with a promotion, helping you understand your feedback? One of the things we saw in previous years was that oftentimes, whether they were women or male managers, were more tentative, more hesitant to give women negative feedback. But negative feedback is also what helps you grow professionally. It helps you learn to be better. It's so much harder, isn't it, Alexis, in terms of the remote environment that we're talking about? It feels more transactional. And and in terms of building networks, I think about some of the elements of the study that really get into what Black women are experiencing, for example, and the particular types of isolation there. Absolutely. So we've talked about these challenges are not born equally across men and women. While everybody is struggling, (laughs) there's still a bigger burden to bear, but they're also not born equally across all groups of women. And Black women 
have the most challenging time in the workplace environment, full stop. And this existed well before the pandemic. In fact, our research had shown consistently that structurally Black women don't advance at the proportional rate they should relative to all other groups. So take that at the very first opportunity for advancement into the first manager position, which in fact is the most inequitable across men and women, something we uh, describe as the broken rung, meaning that very first launch forward is in fact the one that's least fair across men and women. And that's what, four years? How far into one's career is the broken rung come into play? Well, it varies a lot across sectors and particular job roles, but you can imagine for many people, this is, you know, anywhere from three to six years into their career, right? It's a first chance to go from an individual contributor into a manager role. And not everyone is seeking that out at the same moment or with the same opportunity, but it's it really is what sets up the talent pipeline for the future. And in the current context, for every 100 men who leap forward into that manager position, only 85 women do. But most importantly, only 58 Black women do. 58, that's almost half the level of initial advancement, which sets up a slower path to opportunity for Black women all the way through. So we start with structural bias and inequity that is holding Black women back. But then in the context of this moment and the pandemic, there are so many other levels of complexity added to that. So Black women today are three times more likely to report that they're navigating through the death of a loved one in the Mm -hmm. context of COVID. They feel far less comfortable sharing that grief in their workplace environment. And they're twice as likely to say they don't feel like they have the allies and supports they need to really advance. So when you link back to some of what Lorena was describing on mentorship and the importance of sponsorship, even before you get to sponsorship, not only do they not feel like they're represented because they are not fairly in the workplace, but they don't feel like they are heard and supported by those around them. And that's a really critical issue because imagine what that means in terms of how much of your path and your progression you then have to feel like you tackle on your own. Well, and there are other differences. Lorraine, I know this is something you've thought about a lot yourself. Well, I think the most heart-wrenching story is the lack of equity for Black women, but certainly for other women of color, for women with disabilities, for LGBTQ+, we see that same drop-off of experience, less support, less advancement. 45% of women of color report Mm -hmm. that they experience being the only. And Alexis mentioned this as well, but being the only is the experience that's all too common where you enter a room and you're the only one. You may be the only woman and the only woman of color. And what that does to you is a couple of things. One is it gives you an intense feeling of isolation with an intense responsibility at the same time to try and positively represent the stereotypes of your racial group or of your affinity group or of your gender. And that's on top of trying to actually do what you're there to do, which is to present a business case, move a decision, et cetera. And so it's an enormous amount of pressure that's being put on a person 
day in and day out. On top of that, women of color are much more likely to experience microaggressions, those type of demeaning remarks where you are judged to be younger or less authoritative in your capabilities. One of the questions we've asked time and time again is, does your manager question your work? If your work is questioned, does your manager defend your work? And we find that Latina women and Black women are less likely to get that type of basic day-to-day support. That concept of does your manager have your back? Does your manager bet on your potential? That doesn't happen as much for women of color. And to the point Alexis was making earlier about the broken rung, so for every 100 men, as she said, we see 85 women get that first promotion opportunity. Uh, We only see 71 Latina women. And then as she mentioned, 58 Black women. And so it is shocking how quickly those disparities set into the workplace. And then you start to imagine that over a career. Is that an area where we had seen progress over the last six years prior to the pandemic? Well, I think we've seen overall progress at the top for women. I don't think we've seen as fast or as great of progress for women of color. And that's why sometimes it's important to look at intersectionality, which is essentially looking at the intersection of race and of gender, because the experience can be quite different. The importance of intersectionality is looking at the confluence of more than one factor of diversity that an individual holds. So it's often being both a woman and a person of color in the workplace. It's being um, LGBTQ and also female, right? It's these factors that rest on top of each other. And they're really important in this context because what we see, not surprisingly, is that there's not just one experience for women in the workplace. There's a myriad of experiences. And the reality is any element of intersectionality, so any element of otherness that you add to your workplace experience, so where you diverge from the most common, which is currently being a white male, compounds the effects that we see of these challenges in different ways. And so let's take race. In the context of race, we talked about the broken rung, where 100 men leap forward to the first promotion, but only 85 women. Well, that's not the same experience across women. For Latina women, that's 71. And for Black women, that's 58. Another example of this is in the context of having to be an only in the workplace environment. And being an only is important because they are situations where you show up and you are the only one like you there. And what comes with that is not only trying to show up and do your best as an individual business leader, but feeling any measured sense of pressure and responsibility to represent all of the people like you. So women in general experience being an only far more than men but nearly half of Black women say they regularly have the experience of being an only. Similarly for LGBTQ women, these are experiences that are far more frequent and they bring with them more structural challenge and more friction in the workplace that is real, that translates over time into less opportunity to advance. Lorraine, I want to ask about the genesis of this study. What motivated you to start this? We weren't making any progress. We were stuck. I grew up 
thinking that things were more equal, like many women, thinking that, okay, maybe it's particularly hard when the kids are little, but as I become more senior, it's going to get easier. And oh, by the way, the women I started with will be right there next to me. And I remember about 10 years ago, being really excited to become a partner at McKinsey and realizing that I was oftentimes adding to the diversity just by walking into the room because there were no other women between my clients and even at the firm, or certainly women of color. And so I think the genesis for me on a personal level was, how can we understand this better? Because if we put the facts on the table, and if we break it apart in pieces that we can solve, and if we put our business hats on, we can solve anything. Corporate America has the capacity to do better. And so for me, that flashlight which shines brighter and brighter every year of being able to see where we are and to be unafraid of that and say, okay, now let's work on what we would do differently. What's working, what's not, and making sure that this is not a seasonal commitment. A lot of companies, when I first started looking at this, it felt like they were doing one and done programs. And that's just not the way cultural transformation works. And so for me, I think it's very personal. I would love to see more gender equity, but I also want to make sure we put a business context instead of solutions around that. And instead mm -hmm. of just observing the problem, I want it to be part of the solution. Alexis, what have you learned over the six years that this study has been going on? So many things. It's opened my eyes to, and, and that's even as a woman in leadership who already felt sensitized to many of these experiences. But um, let me share too, the, the, the first thing that struck me was just as Lorena said, that the sensation we had that something wasn't working right and something far deeper, unintended, but, but really structural was at play in creating an unlevel playing field was at work. And the very first year we did the report, we said, well, gosh, everyone has a sense that this is generational and the time will come and just wait and be patient. But does the data actually tell us that? And we looked at the data and we ran the numbers and we said, well, how long will it take at this rate to get parity in the C-suite? Like how long do we have to wait to get to equity? And the answer was 100 years. <laughs> 100 years. And I thought, okay, eight, my children's children's children, you know, I have three daughters. Like, I don't know how long I can live to see this through. But it, it felt both deeply devastating and really confirming of what so many of us were feeling, which was, it's this isn't just about your time will come. Something is going wrong and we're not intending it, but it's the outcome we're getting. And we've got to get underneath and dig in to understand what it is so we can fix it. I mean, no one's going to want to wait three, four generations to see this solved. And how do you fix perceptions? I mean, do you feel, Lorena, that the perceptions have changed? Even the gatekeepers, especially at those senior levels, do tend to be white men who may not knowingly be sexist, but may not recognize excellence in a form that isn't familiar to themselves. Yeah, I do think we are seeing change. Now, broadly across every company in corporate America, and someone listening to this says, you know, maybe saying, that's not my lived experience. And I would say it is not universal. So we are seeing pockets. We are seeing some companies, some industries track a little bit faster. Those were the bright spots you mentioned. And what I think is very helpful is there wasn't language and data in a way to explain any of this. 
before. We weren't talking about onlys. We weren't talking about microaggressions. And certainly academics fully understood that these were cultural barriers, but it wasn't as commonplace in the workplace, in corporate America, to talk about this. And every year, there will be a couple of moments where we're sharing our findings with groups of women, and someone will come up to me and say, thank you for putting words and numbers against my experience. Thank you for helping me realize I'm not crazy. This is not just me experiencing it and also giving me some very tangible things I can do to be a better supporter of other women. Or if I'm a male leader, how I can actually bridge that gap between intent and results. And I think it's good that companies are impatient. They're impatient for change. They're impatient for results. That's a healthy tension to have. I think our concern this year is that we may have a significant step backwards, which will make that 100 years all the more elusive. Is there, Alexis, any good that can come out of this in terms of flexibility, at least, was one of the things that women did list as being a key component of what they felt was holding them back. How do we turn this into a moment of positive change? Oh, absolutely. The the silver lining here is certainly that we have injected into the system a degree of extreme experimentation with flexibility that we've never seen before, nor ever would have thought was possible. I was born out of a humanitarian and health crisis But what it has created is an experiment that has companies saying, we will never go back. And that's really profound and something that we can capture in a very positive way. And what we mean by we can never go back is 93% of companies are saying, we anticipate more flexibility in our workplace environment and allowing people to work from home, sourcing talent from different places than we did in the past. We anticipate less business travel. We anticipate the ability for people to work from different locations. And that's hugely important because the number one thing women stated in the past would make a difference to them in being able to remain competitive and thrive in the workplace was greater flexibility. So if we can solve for this, if we can harness this moment and gain that positive piece out of it while solving for all of the issues right now that sit around it because we're operating in a pandemic, things like a lack of consistent childcare and elder care, the increased workload and stress associated with a health crisis that's happening around us. If we can solve for those elements and ride through them, on the other side, you can imagine unleashing a level of flexibility that really allows women to thrive. Alexis, just talk a little bit about what You've learned that you've adapted in your own behaviors for your career as a leader. The greatest reflection for me has been how am I myself adapting my personal playbook to meet this moment? And the piece I worry most about are those informal elements of connectivity and things that build support over time towards sponsorship that would have otherwise hopefully occurred in micro moments in the workplace environment that now have to be thoughtfully recrafted in this virtual world. And we already know they're not distributed equally in the workplace, that women don't receive as many of those interactions and that support, and in particular, women of color. But it's especially at risk in this moment. 
63% of employees say they feel they are allies to women of color. But when you ask the specific questions about behaviors underneath that, that would suggest that they're supporting women, are they listening to their stories for women of color? That number drops to 41%. Are they taking a public stand on racial equity? That number drops to 29%. Do they personally mentor or sponsor a woman of color? 10%. And that's a profoundly lower execution rate on our aspiration. And so for me personally, the biggest reflection has been how can I make sure in my own actions, I don't just say I want to be these things, but I show up in my daily moments to be those things. And then how do I get those around me? Maybe those with less awareness, including male colleagues and others who don't have that shared experience to draw upon, to realize that they too need to ensure that they're actually making those moments happen. Lorena, what about you? I think this concept of work-life balance just has been busted because there are no formal boundaries between work and your personal life when you're working from home. And I think the silver lining in that is we need to redefine what that looks like. Alexis mentioned this as well, but you know, one of the things that we will get to do going forward out of this pandemic is define work that's flexible, that allows us the benefits But right now, we're getting all the flexibility without any of the benefits. So I think there is a piece on how do we reconstruct how we work so that life is not a trade-off. You're not sitting there deciding between your job and your children, but that all of that is actually one thing that you're working towards and that you can be as ambitious as you are in your career aspirations as in your personal and family aspirations. So I hope that's one piece that comes out of what has been an incredibly tough year for so many Americans and so many people around the world in the workforce. We end of a long, long, long day with no boundaries. <laughs> like a day where my children, despite the sign that said, do not enter for any reason, no matter what, came in here three times during this. Oh yeah, I had someone check in as well. It was so funny. So I'm sorry, one more thing. I also think that for companies, as you think about leadership beyond the COVID pandemic, and when you think about how we steer our companies, so much of the emphasis is on delivering performance results. And out of this research, I hope more and more companies are saying, what about also delivering our cultural results at the same level? Lorena, Alexis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was Lorena Yee, Senior Partner, McKinsey's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer out of San Francisco, and Alexis Krivkovich, Senior Partner who leads the San Francisco office and the company's fintech practice in North America. For more information on the Women in the Workplace study, go to McKinsey.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.